The Bob Murphy Show, episode 273. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. This episode's going to be a little technical, not going to lie to you. In fact, if you want to skip it, you have my permission, but not my blessing. You see the distinction? So specifically what I'm doing, joking aside, is for an Edward Elgar book that Per Byland edited called A Modern Guide to Austrian Economics, I had, what is this, chapter 12 on the pure time preference theory of interest, All right? And so what we're supposed to do, what our mission was for these essays, they didn't want us to just merely do like history, Okay, that they wanted us to provide this, you know, the modern guy too. The idea was that grad students who wanted to do a dissertation in Austrian economics could read this guide to kind of get up to speed on various topics or subfields, whatever you want to call it, in that tradition to know, like, you know, obviously here's some of the main things you need to read on this, but then to say, like, this is the state of the art, and then here's where further contributions are needed. So it's, it's looking forward, not looking backward. So that's what I was aiming to do here. So some of this that I have in the chapter is material you would have heard before on the Bob Murphy show. I had a three-part series on Bobberk. So some of this is familiar territory, but a lot of it's new. Now, if you saw my interview with Jeff Herbner, you'll get a taste of it. But basically when Pear approached me and said, hey, can you do something on that? And when we settled on this topic, I realized given how busy things were on my end and that I wasn't in pure academia anymore, I thought, okay, this is, God gave me this opportunity to say, you need to write down somewhere, Bob, all your current thoughts on pure time preference theory of interest before you forget and move on with other things you got going on. So that's what I did here. I wanted to make sure that I connected the old school stuff. Oh, here's the pure time preference theory historically, my thoughts on Bumbabark and the development, and then... What are some of the problems with it? And then where does Austrian economics go? And I will summarize all that in this episode. If nothing else, I am recording this so that my PhD student, Ryan Griggs, has to listen to this. So I know there's going to be at least one person who, not at gunpoint, but there is borderline coercion involved, is going to have to listen to this episode. So that's going to just make me relax that I know. There's going to be at least one listener. By the way, I asked Ryan, I said, can I mention that I'm your dissertation advisor? So he's getting a PhD at UFM and I'm his official supervisor. And it's in capital theory in the Austrian tradition is what Ryan's working on. So he's reading all this stuff. So looking forward to what he ends up producing. Okay, so let me last sort of caveat Partly I'm going over this too is it's a standard thing with modern books that are in these sort of academic presses. If you wanted to buy the book, 
that pair edited. I just checked out Amazon right now. You could get it for the very modestly priced $185. So 10 years from now, $185 won't be so much. You probably get three loaves of bread, but right now I can see why that still might be kind of steep. So that's partly why I'm doing this episode is just to make sure I shine a light on this stuff so that future people working on this topic realize this chapter that I wrote exists and that I'm putting stuff in this chapter that I don't have written down anywhere. These are capturing some of my thoughts on the stuff that does not exist in print anywhere. So again, I just want to make sure. Apparently, James Joyce, Gene Callahan told me this story once, that James Joyce would have his, I don't know if the word is disciples or students or fans, whatever. He went through and at least with some of his harder work, like they would go out, I want to say they went out to the pub or something, but maybe I'm just making that up. Maybe that's just stereotypical, but that he had like a series of sessions with them to just go through his work to make sure that they understood like, okay, now I see what I did here. Do you see what I did here? You see what I did here? Just to make sure everybody got what he was doing. So I think for sure that he did it with Ulysses and I don't know if he did it with something else. Okay. But when Gene first told me that, I thought that was kind of lame. But then now that I'm older, I understand. I don't know if it was the right thing, but I understand why someone would feel the need to do that. Okay. So by chapter, I'm just going to, I've got the PDF open here for, by the way, in case you're wondering, I am not legally allowed to just post the PDF of my chapter. Otherwise that would have been an obvious thing to do. So if you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 273, naturally I'll give links to the book and how you can order it and things like that, but I'm not allowed contractually with them to just post the PDF of my chapter. So I'm going to summarize its contents, but you're not going to be able to actually get your hands on it. Okay, so I start out, again, what my topic is, is the pure time preference theory of interest. And I'm, in principle, my audience for this chapter are serious students of Austrian economics, including graduate students who might want to do work on capital and interest theory in the Austrian tradition. All right, so that's the level that we're going for here. But I will, in this episode of the Bob Murphy Show, my audience is the intelligent layperson who has some background in hearing Austrian economists talk about capital and interest theory, all right? So you don't have to be an economist yourself, but this episode will make more sense to you if you've gone to Mises University or watched a bunch of our lectures online and you know some of the basics of Austrian theory. Okay, that's enough preamble. Let's get into this, you're probably saying. You would have to have a very low time preference to have made it this far without me giving you any content. Okay, let me just read a little bit from the intro. I'm skipping around a bit. Capital and interest theory has always featured prominently in the Austrian school. Economists of all schools recognize the tremendous influence of Eugen von Bambavark, whose agio, or agio, it's spelled A-G-I-O, theory of interest was the forerunner of both the standard approach and the neoclassical mainstream, as well as the Austrian approach, namely the pure time preference theory, or PTPT, that's often abbreviated, of interest. Okay, so even there, let me just I guess the way I'll handle this is I'll read some excerpts and then I'll do sort of like director's commentary on it. So here I'm not, I'm not merely saying this to make us look relevant or something. Like it really is the case that the way Bumbavrk tried to, well, first of all, formulated and then in his mind solved the interest problem or puzzle was the foundation for both the Austrians' current theory, or at least the one that Mises and Rothbard and Roger Garrison and Israel Kersner adopted and 
the neoclassical mainstream, specifically in the tradition of Irving Fisher. Okay, so if you asked, I always use as a baseline for me to try to figure out what I get when I say, what does the mainstream thing? I think of the people I went to NYU with, like people in my class. I was there from 1998 to 2003, getting my PhD in economics from NYU. Specifically, it was the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, right? There's also the Stern School, which is more of like the business. So you could get a PhD at NYU from the Stern School, but that was more of a financial business approach, whereas the Graduate School version there was more theoretical. So anyway, I'm trying to get in the mindset of my peers in terms of like what they would have seen without them separately or independently being interested in this stuff, because it's part of the problem, and we'll get into this in a little bit in this episode. If you ask them, what's the theory of interest? I think they would look at you kind of funny. Like, well, what do you mean? Like they wouldn't even, because that, it wasn't stressed. You know what I mean? Like it's not like we ever took a class at some point while getting a PhD in economics and only you, and somebody got up there on the whiteboard and said, okay, so you know, where does interest come from? Let's think about that. And is that, no, like they don't talk like that. They just start writing out equations and stuff. And here's how you solve this for the problem set. And, you know, that kind of thing. Like it's, so looking at what they were doing, what I can say is the way you would quote solve for or find the interest rate. One thing is you were, what you were doing was finding the real rate of interest. And part of the issue was, and again, we'll get to this more specifically, maybe two-thirds of the way through this current episode that you're listening to. But just to anticipate, in the standard workhorse model that you would use at that level, at least, again, from 98 to 2003, I don't know from firsthand experience what they would teach, but my guess is the basics have not changed all that much. Like maybe given the financial crisis and stuff like that, they, maybe they, you learn some models, especially if that's the area you want to specialize in with bank crises and things like that. And so they got to do some extra bells and whistles. But even there, I don't think it's going to change anything that I'm talking about now. It would still be what you would still be computing, I think, is the real rate of interest. But in any event, and so what does that mean? It's basically, what's the intertemporal exchange rate of present consumption for future consumption? Those are my words because I had to distill it out. That's what I'm saying. Like Nobody ever said that. What you would do in practice you'd have a production function and labor and capital would be the two inputs into it. So F of K comma L equals Y, maybe subscript with the time period. So F of K sub T, L sub T equals Y sub T, right? Saying that output at time T is equal to some function of the capital stock at time T and the labor supply at time T. And then what you would do is take account of savings and capital accumulation or loss with depreciation and stuff, you would say that decay of T plus one, right? So what's the capital stock next period would equal like one minus delta if that was the, you represent the depreciation rate times KT, right? So the delta of the capital at time T falls away because through depreciation. So one minus that is the fraction that survives. Then plus YT minus consumption at time T, something like that. So the gap between output last period and, or output this period and consumption this period is how much you're saving or investing this period. So then you add that to the net capital stock that survives after the appreciation. That's what you carry forward 
that's kt plus one that gets plugged to the production function next period. Okay, so that's the way they would think about the evolution of the capital stock and how does it relate to output and saving and consumption. And then to say, so, okay, in that world, what's the equilibrium real rate of interest? And again, they would probably just say, what's the equilibrium rate of interest? I'm saying the word real because I realize there's a distinction between nominal and real. I put in the standard models, like this is the solo model. If you want to know what I'm talking about here, that's what it is. I think they would just say that a rate of interest and they wouldn't even think about it. But I'm adding it because I'm realizing if there is that distinction, technically what we're pinning down here is the real rate. So you would just say R, little r at time t is the derivative, I guess, which technically be the partial derivative of the production function with respect to kt. Okay, so basically saying if you added an infinitesimal amount more of the capital good into the production function at the current levels of capital and labor input, how does that change on the margin output? And then that is the rate of interest in equilibrium. Okay, so that's the way they think about it. And so, again, I'm just anticipating here. On its face, that sounds like the naive productivity theory of interest. It sounds like saying, oh, you had a little bit more capital, output goes up some, and then that's why capitalists earn a rate of return on their investment. And as we'll see, that is literally the naive productivity theory of interest that Pumbauer ostensibly blew up in the 1800s. So what the heck? Again, that, and so me solving that apparent paradox was basically a chunk of what I did in my dissertation. So I will be sure to hit that again. Okay. But where I'm going with all this, you might say, Bob, didn't you just paint yourself into a corner? The whole point when you went off this little tangent was to explain to us that Bavar not only laid the foundation for the later, you know, explicitly Austrian pure time preference theory of interest, but also the mainstream version that Irving Fisher gave to the neoclassical mainstream. So what the heck? How did he do both? And I'm saying even though the average person getting an advanced degree in economics, at least in the United States, but you know, well, the English-speaking world, put it that way, even though they would not think of it in these terms and they don't learn the history of thought, I'm telling you, and this isn't just my idiosyncratic take, like historians of economic thought would endorse what I'm saying here, that Irving Fisher is the father of the modern mainstream theory of interest. And in his seminal work in the dedication page or whatever you want, yeah, I guess that's what you call it. He dedicates it to a, one other economist in Bambavark to say his debt to them. All right. And it's not merely him acknowledging it. I mean, I'm saying I can tell you that you can see it in his work. And so specifically, even though you might think and you may have been taught that Irving Fisher said interest was due to the interplay between like supply and demand factors or objective cost factors and subjective time preference factors. Still, the definition of what is interest in a Fishering or Fishering, a Fisherite model is the premium on present consumption goods over future consumption goods. Or if you prefer like the market exchange rate of, you know, like one unit of consumption good today, if you traded it intertemporally, how many units of consumption good could you get next period? That's what the real rate of interest is in Irving Fishing, Fishing, Irving Fisher's framework. And then he's just coming up with ways to pin that thing down in equilibrium. 
Okay, so, but I'm saying it was Bambarak and his insights that pointed at that to say, oh, what interest is, is a premium on present goods over future goods. And I'm saying that's both in the pure time preference theory and in the modern neoclassical. And they went, no, but they, she, interest is a marginal product of capital. And I'm saying that's an equilibrium condition as to what pins down the interest, the actual definition of if we have this model written out and we've got an agent with his utility function, we've got some production functions, how physically we can take the inputs and turn them into outputs and blah, 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 blah. And then in this, you know, what's the real wage rate? And you say, oh, it's how much labor gets paid. That's what we mean. And then you say, well, what's it equal to? Oh, it's the derivative of the production function with respect to labor. That's what the real wage rate is going to be equal to in equilibrium. Okay, but I'm saying the interest where you say, well, what is it? Oh, it's the premium on present, either goods versus future goods, or more specifically, present consumption goods. Or if there's a multiple consumption goods, it's a basket of the consumption goods and then the market value of that. If you sold it for money and then lent the money out at interest and then got your payment next period and then took that money and went and bought the same basket in terms of the composition, how many baskets of those goods could you get now? Like if you could get 1.1 baskets and that's a 10% real rate of interest, that that's the way you define what do we mean by the interest rate in a model like this that often doesn't even have money in it. It just has the real goods exchanging in real terms. So if it's, there's just apples, well, okay, if you sell 10 apples today and buy claims on future apples, how many can you get? Oh, if you can get 11, then that means the real rate of interest is 10%. Okay, so I'm saying once you get in the world of these models, that stuff's real commonplace and you don't even think about it. But I'm saying that's all coming from Bambavark, that formulation. And incidentally, in my dissertation, I said, that's the wrong way to think about it. I said, that's not Austrian, but I don't want to go down that path right now. I'm just mentioning that and then I'm not, I'm not even going to talk about it again. Okay. So, or maybe I will. <laughs> if I mention it in this chapter, then maybe I'll refer to it, but I'm not going to separately bring that up because that's not the point. This isn't about me. There's no I in Austrian econ. Well, there is, but okay. All right. So again, my point with all this big digression was to say Bumbavark's work really did lay the foundations for the mainstream and the Austrian theories of interests as they were developed in the 20th century. Okay, don't worry, folks. You might say, all right, that took you 20 minutes, Bob, and you're just on page one, and there's 22 pages, so you do the math. But no, it is not going to be linear. Okay, so here, let me just read. So how did Bambavrik formulate the interest problem? He says, this income is distinguished by certain notable characteristics. It, oh, this is a quote from Mubarak. It owes its existence to no personal activity of the capitalist and flows into him. He, by the way, so he had, I'm jumping in obviously here. He had talked about, he'd set up the situation where in a market economy, it's a regular phenomenon. It's not like some outlier events. Like this happens as a matter of course that the capitalist can invest his or her funds into productive goods, let's call them. And then that provides a flow of income. And so Bambavrik is saying, this income is distinguished by certain notable characteristics. It owes its existence to no personal activity of the capitalist and flows into him even where he has not moved a finger in its making. Consequently, it seems in a peculiar sense to spring from capital or, to use a very old metaphor, to be begotten of it. 
It may be obtained from any capital, no matter what the kind of goods of which the capital consists, from goods that are barren as well as from those that are naturally fruitful, from perishable as well as from durable goods, from goods that can be replaced and from goods that cannot be replaced, from money as well as from commodities. And finally, it flows into the capitalist without ever exhausting the capital from which it comes, and therefore without any necessary limit to its continuance. It is, if one may use such an expression about mundane things, capable of an everlasting life. Thus it is that the phenomenon of interest as a whole presents the remarkable picture of a lifeless thing producing an everlasting and inexhaustible supply of goods. And this remarkable phenomenon appears in economic life with such perfect regularity that the very conception of capital has not infrequently been based on it. And then in italics that were in the original, whence and why does the capitalist, without personally exerting himself, obtain this endless flow of wealth? These words contain the theoretical problem of interest. When the actual facts of the relation between interest and capital, with all its essential characteristics, are described and fully explained, that problem will be solved. Okay, and actually, I'm looking at the notes here. It says emphasis added. So maybe when I just said the italics there in the original, maybe they weren't. Maybe I put them in there. It's just, <laughs> it's been so long since I've actually in Bambavrik looked at the original versus my quotation of it that I guess I feel come to think that that was the original. Okay, so let me just make sure you're getting what he means of this one part where he says that interest can flow from, or this income that we call interest income, flows from capital no matter what kind of goods they are, all right? They can be goods that are barren as well as from those that are naturally fruitful. Okay, so what he means there is that, you know, let's say you have, dealing with the U.S. context, so we're talking dollars, let's say you have $1,000 of capital. And by the way, an important distinction to make that Mies is really hammered and then I continued my work and I know Ryan's really stressing in his is the distinction between capital goods and financial capital. All right, so, and that's part of the problem in this tradition is people use the word capital to refer to either, and those are clearly distinct things. You could really do a whole dissertation just on that. All right, so that's part of the problem in this literature is people use the word capital to mean either financial capital. Capital is an accounting concept where we're using the money prices of various things and aggregating that to talk about how much capital do we have in this enterprise, but that also thinking in terms of the goods that are produced means of production. So those are capital goods, right? So as distinct from labor and land. All right. And so that's the source of a lot of the trouble in this area is people flipping around and talking about one thing and then another. Okay. But what Bambavrik is getting at here is, let's say you have a thousand dollars in financial capital you could invest that, and let's say the going market rate of interest is 10%. You could invest that in a plot of land that produces crops every harvest. So that's very fruitful. And if you looked at, okay, you know, the produces the crops every year, then you sell them for money, and you would, other things equal, as if this were all you know perfectly certain, obviously future market conditions aren't, but in the baseline where you know everything with certainty, you would earn a 10% return on your investment. So you would be able to sell $100 worth of crops every year. In contrast, if you spent $1,000 buying a copper mine or a fraction of it, and then you ran that, and so it's going to run out, and then you ran the numbers, 
you would earn also a 10% rate of return on your investment. Now there, you wouldn't sell $100 worth of copper every year because the mine would also be depreciating in value, right? Because you wouldn't just be able to do that forever. At some point, you'd run out of copper and then instead of it throwing off $100 a year, eventually it'd start throwing off zero. And so you would have to recoup not just the interest earnings, but also the original principal on that. But the numbers would be such that if you calculated it out, your total return would be 10% while you own that thing, right? And so that's what Bambarik is talking about. He's saying it's like one is barren versus fruitful, right? Like it's not like the mine is creating more copper. It's just like a fixed amount that you're digging out. Okay, and so in case that's it, it would have to be like that. Right, prices would adjust to make it the case. It can't be, and again, with all this, I'm saying it's with certainty. In the real world, you wouldn't know exactly how much copper was in there and blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And the extraction costs could change, you know, in the future, depending on new in innovations, you know, all kinds of stuff in the real world that would complicate this. But the baseline, it couldn't be the case in equilibrium that you as an investor make 10% buying a plot of land with your $1,000, whereas you make 14% or 6% buying the copper mine. Prices would adjust such that you're making the same rate of return in both lines. Okay. Now, what Bambavrik did after he formulated the interest problem, right? So he's saying, why is this the case? Why is it that if you happen to have a sum of capital, meaning financial capital, that you can deploy into various concrete goods, why is it that that tends to provide you a flow of income such that you not only get a gross return, but you get a net return? That it's like the capital stock, it's the amount of financial capital under your control tends to go up over time when you invest it. And why is that? Because it's not because you're working really hard, right? It's not due to your labor. So what is the source of this net return to the capitalists? That's what he's trying to explain. So, and again, so he categorizes, comes up with a taxonomy of all the different types of interest theories to explain this phenomenon that had been written when he published this thing in 1884, this first volume, as a history and critique of interest theories. And so he talks about the exploitation theory. He talks about a waiting theory or an impatience theory, things like that. Okay, I, those might not be the exact terms he puts on them, but the, you know, that's the type of thing. And it's just a masterful critique. I've talked elsewhere about it. So at Mises.org, I walked through, I think, three separate. And one was like the exploitation theory, like the, which basically is the Marxist theory of interest, but, you know, more generic than that. To just say, oh, the source of interest to the capitalist or the source of his pure profit is that he underpays the workers. The workers produce a certain amount. The capitalist only pays them a subsistence wage and he keeps the gap how much do the workers produce above what they need to themselves consume in order to maintain their productive powers. And so the Marxist framework, that surplus, the capitalist skims off the top. And that's the return to the capitalist's invested capital, right? Like he uses his financial capital to pay wages to the workers, and then he gets to keep the full value of their product, whereas they don't get paid the full value of their product. That gap is the specific return of the capitalist, right? So it's, you know, it's a plausible worldview like that fits and you know you can see why someone would that kind of there's certain in, internal logic to that okay but if Mbavik just blows it up oh my goodness 
And so that's what it is. So anyway, one of the particular classes of explanation that he addresses is what he called the naive productivity theory. Now, I want to stress the term's not redundant, right? So he's not saying it's a productivity theory and hence it's naive. He's saying, no, for this particular critique I'm about to give, this is a productivity theory that is naive. And so it has a specific flaw. So it's not that any theory that it all involves productivity considerations is invalid a la Bambavark, which is what Frank Fetter and then Mises and Rothbard picked up on, alleged. They said, oh, Bambavark, what the heck? Is he Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde over here? He doesn't remember he blew up productivity theory? No, what he blew up here was a naive productivity theory. Okay, and so the naive productivity theory, I'm just looking at the clock here, so I'm not going to quote from Bambavark. I'm just going to go fast to this, folks, to get up to the new stuff. But the naive productivity theory said, oh, the reason the capitalist who invests in capital goods can earn a return is that those capital goods are productive. You can produce more stuff with them than without. So duh, of course, if you buy a tractor, when you put it to use on the farm, that's going to boost your you know, harvest. And that's why you are able to earn an interest on your investment. Duh. And so what Bambavark went through and demonstrated, he said, no, I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but he said that the fact that a capital good like a tractor is productive, that explains why you could rent it out for a positive price. It doesn't explain though why you can buy it and then sell off the augmented production that it generates and then earn not only your original purchase price back, but then a margin on top of that, right? Because we could imagine a scenario where yes, the tractor is productive. That's why it has a positive price, but everybody takes into account the full contribution it's going to make. And that augmentation or that increment in the yield is fully reflected in its current price. And so you buy it, you can rent it out to somebody else so they pay you money or you can use it in your own production processes and then you have higher output that you sell to get more money that way. But what if by the time the tractor completely depreciates and is scrap metal, it has boosted your revenues only by the amount that you originally paid for it, in which case your net rate of return on your investment would be 0%. And that would be totally consistent with the tractor being productive. Okay, so again, Bambarov was kind of showing like the dimensions were wrong that they were just getting mixed up between the rental price and the return on the invested financial capital. Hey folks, let's take a pause in the action for me to remind you, if you like what you're hearing, then I encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to set up a either a one-shot or a recurring support payment at bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. There's some incentives there for good as you can get based on your support level. But in general, if you like what you're hearing, by all means, give back to the community. And I do want to mention whether you do it or not, I'm not setting up a transaction. I'm just telling you I'm going to do this. I'm going to resume now doing two episodes in a typical week, one being my solo commentary and the other being an interview. All right. So I'm going to get back on track booking interviews now that things are a bit more stable on my end. So again, thank you for all who have contributed already. But if you're considering it, Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay. So that was the critique of the naive productivity theory of interest. Again, it was naive because it simply said 
capital goods are productive. So does somebody who buys them obviously is going to earn interest return on their capital. And no, that doesn't follow at all. Okay. So then Bambavrik's own theory was the agio theory. I don't know if it's agio or agio. I don't know how you'd pronounce it. But the way to remember that is there's, I think when it comes to foreign currencies, the term agio is saying like the premium of one currency over another. Like that's where that word is used in modern lingo. And so Bumbavrik's agio theory of interest starts out by saying there's a difference in valuation. That's why he used that term. Specifically, well, here I'll quote from him. Present goods are as a general rule worth more than future goods of equal quality and quantity. All right, so I have that in italics, and then I have in the note, emphasis in original. So that one, Mambarek himself put in italics. That sentence is the nub and kernel of the theory of interest which I have to present. And again, that's what I mean when I say that, that that's not only the foundation of the modern Austrian pure time preference theory of interest, but actually it's also the underpinning of Irving Fisher's explanation too. All right, so that solves the problem I don't have time to do it here or, and also it'd be difficult, but if you do get the chapter or if your name is Ryan, then make sure you understand how that nubbin kernel really does solve the problem. Okay. And specifically, I have a table here. It's real simple, but I thought it, it was important to write this out because if you don't think of it, you might not understand what he means, what Pumavrik means. All right. And so I have this table. Actually, let me just say that out in words. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to show you how in an economy that's a pure endowment economy, right? So there's no physical production or that there's certainly no investment. It's just there's two coconut trees shooting out 100 coconuts every period, okay? So there's no question about people investing labor or capital to augment future output. Just every period, there's these two trees. Alice owns one of the trees and Bill owns the other tree. And every period, each tree shoots out 100 coconuts regardless of what Alice and Bill do. Okay, so it's not like I got to put fertilizer in it. It's not that they got to not pick too many coconuts or else next period, not as many are produced that none of that. Okay, that's what's meant by a pure endowment economy. Okay, so in this world, again, total output, if that's the way you want to look at it, is 200 coconuts every period, no matter what. But now Alice and Bill can still trade coconuts. And you might say, well, how can that work? If each of them just gets 100 coconuts each period, what would be the point? If Alice had bananas and Bill had coconuts, then we could talk about trade. But if they each just have 100 coconuts, see what the heck is that? Because they can engage in intertemporal trades, all right, that Alice or Bill can hand over present coconuts in exchange for promises that the other person will deliver coconuts in the future to them. Okay, so in this specific example, I said that suppose in period one, Bill borrows 20 coconuts from Alice at a 5% rate of interest. And so now what happens? And then suppose every period, they just keep rolling that debt over. So that what happens physically, what look, you know, in terms of the consumption flows, is in period one, Alice eats 80 coconuts and Bill eats 120. So notice 80 plus 120 is 200, right? So that's reflecting the fact that if there were no trades, they would each eat 100. But because Alice lent 20 to Bill, her consumption drops from 100 to 80. His rises from 100 to 120. But of course, you know, the total among them is still 200. Now, next period, what happens? The consumption is Alice eats 101 and Bill eats 99. 
So again, adds to 200. And so what's happening there is if you want to think of it this way, Bill is paying interest on the debt, right? He owes her 20 coconuts and it rolls over at 5% per period. So that works out to one coconut that he owes her an interest every period. And so he just keeps paying her the interest, but doesn't knock down the principal, if that's the way you want to think about it. So every period going forward now, Alice eats 101 coconuts and Bill eats 99. So the total is always 200. So you see how that's physically possible. So what happened conceptually is Alice in period one traded away 20 present coconuts. By the way, if I said apples earlier, I meant coconuts. I don't know if I slept as normally in these things. I talk about apples and oranges. Okay, but this is just the coconuts right now. So in period one, Alice traded away 20 present coconuts for a promised future stream of one coconut per period indefinitely. So just like if she had money and took $20 and bought a console, a perpetual bond with a market value of 20 that had a 5% rate of return built into it, then that thing would be giving a flow of $1 per period forever. Okay. And again, you see how physically that can happen. So what's the point? Why did I go through all that? To show Bumbavrik's explanation works. At least if we're just trying to explain real interest rates measured in terms of consumption goods. That clearly here, you understand how, oh yeah, the fact that the present goods here traded at a premium to future goods. Alice sold 20 present goods in exchange for a perpetual stream of future coconuts. All right, if you want to think of it this way, she's getting a lot more than 20 future coconuts for her 20 today. I mean, in a sense, she's getting an infinite number, but you get the idea. If you had wanted to, you can have a bill roll the thing over, like, like pay the thing off every period. So technically, if it helps you think of it, Alice is selling 20 coconuts today in order to get 21 returned to her next period. If you're getting a little screwed up with the, you know, infinite stream of ones. Okay, so clearly if she sells 20 today and then Bill owes her 21 next period, you can think of it that way. And then they just roll the loan over again. So like picture Bill totally paying her off. They're even Steven so that if she wanted to, she would eat, what, 121 and Bill would eat 79. But then she lends him 20 again. So he actually gets to eat 99 and she only gets to eat 101. And then next period, again, the same deal. He pays her 21 out of the 100 that his tree shoots out. And then she can decide to lend him the 20 again if she wants and only eats the net one. Okay. So there clearly, again, you're selling 20 coconuts now for a claim on a promise to deliver 21 coconuts next period. So present goods are more valuable than future goods. And there's a sense in which Alice by having savings and cash, she saved 20 coconuts out of her income and then invested it into IOUs that Bill gave her. You know, think of it that way if you want. So she's clearly earning an interest return measured in coconuts if we're using a real approach to interest. And it clearly isn't because of the physical productivity of capital goods. Yeah, the trees shoot out coconuts, but they shoot out the same number each period. It's not that oh, if we're willing to abstain from present consumption and we plant more seeds, then more trees grow down the road. And that's because of the higher output, you know, 10 periods from now, we can have a thousand coconuts. And that's why that would be plausible. And in the real world, agriculture does work like that. But in this example where it's fixed, so every period, just hundred coconuts out of each tree, time in, time out. The whole point of doing this type of example is to isolate what's driving what and to show 
no, you can have interest even if there isn't rising output due to saving in physical capital investment. Because in this example, there's no saving physically, right? You're not physically doing something with your savings. I should clarify. So Alice financially saves, or I guess you could even say it saves in real terms, but the investment she makes is just to hand it over to Bill for a pure consumption loan. Okay. So again, that's the sense in which Bumbavrik is saying his theory of interest is due to, a, you know, he appeals to the higher valuation of present over consumption goods. Boom, that explains it. Done. Now, if you ask, okay, but why should there be a higher valuation of present over future goods? That's when he then gets into his three different grounds. Okay. I'm not even going to talk about those right now because I'm just going to move ahead because I don't want to get all bogged down in that. I've talked about it in my three-part series. Again, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 273 and I'll give links if you want to look at that stuff. Okay, let me just spend a minute on, I have a section entitled Interest in the Marginal Product of Capital Dangers of the One Good Model. And so I say, modern economics students trained in formal methods may dismiss Bumbavrik's quaint verbal reasoning as somehow mistaken. And by that, I mean Bumbavrik's reasoning where he ostensibly blew up the so-called naive productivity theory of interest, where he showed interest is not due to the productivity of the capital goods, right? And remember what I talked about at the start of this episode. Well, I'll read this and then I'll comment. Okay. Modern economic students, blah, 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 may dismiss it because standard workhorse models seem to show quite clearly that in equilibrium, the real rate of interest equals the, quote, marginal product of capital, just as the real wage rate equals the marginal product of labor. For example, when explaining the famous solo model where K and L represent the levels of capital and labor while A represents the technology parameter, David Romer writes, and so now here I have an excerpt. And so by the way, this David Romer that I'm talking about here, this is a standard graduate level text, right? This is the textbook that we were assigned at NYU. All right, so this is, I didn't go grab some wacky thing. This is state of the art. I mean, as I record this now in 2023, I don't know if they still use this, but as of early 2000s, Romer's textbook was standard for graduate programs. Okay. And so the excerpt now from Romer says, as described in chapter one, the marginal product of capital, namely the derivative of F with respect to K, is, and he's got F prime, little f prime of little K, where little f dot is the intensive form of the production function. Don't worry about that, folks. Because markets are competitive, capital earns its marginal product. All right, so there he's, that's an economic concept. That's not a math thing. He's saying, if we're assuming that capital markets are competitive, then that means different producers who have the production function at their disposal, they have to pay the capitalists the marginal product to get their investment. If they didn't pay them that, they would just go to somewhere else. Just like the firms need to pay workers the marginal product of labor in the form of wages because there's competition in the labor market. That if you weren't getting paid your marginal product, some other firm would offer to you and you'd go there. So to be clear, in these models, there's only one firm. They technically don't even have a firm. They just kind of have the production function and don't even worry about, well, who's overseeing this thing? They don't even have that. But they're just saying this economic reasoning leads us to say it must be the case in equilibrium that capital earns its marginal product because we're assuming the markets for capital are competitive. Okay, that's what he's getting at here. Okay. 
And because there's no depreciation, the real rate of return on capital equals its earnings per unit time. Thus, the real interest rate at time t is given by, it's got little r as a function of t, like with t in parentheses, equals f prime k of t. All right. So then I say, in other words, Romer is arguing that when markets are competitive and absent depreciation, the real interest rate is equal to the increment in real output yielded by an increment in the physical capital stock. Although we are not quoting him here, Romer would analogously argue that because labor markets are competitive, the real wage rate is equal to the marginal product of labor. In other words, the derivative of the production function with respect to L. And I say, at first blush, Romer's analysis seems to openly embrace the naive productivity theory that Mombavar presumably demolished in the 1880s. Indeed, generations of economists have been raised to believe that interest reflects the marginal product of capital by which they have in mind, quote, you produce more output when you input more capital. All right, so that's not a literal quote that I am quoting from someone, but I'm putting it in their words to say that's the way they're thinking about it. And I know it is because I've talked to them. I've worked with these people. That's what they mean. Just like, well, yeah, if you put in a little bit more labor and output goes up, that's the real wage rate in a competitive market. The worker gets paid what he's bringing to the table on the margin. And so they think, okay, and our production function clearly is increasing in K, you add more capital, you get more stuff. So of course the capitalists have to be paid that in equilibrium if there's competition and the capitalists have to be paid the full value of their input on the margin. We call that the interest because everybody knows workers earn wages, capitalists earn interest. Duh. Okay, so that's how they're thinking and that seems again to be literally the naive productivity theory. That, oh, how do we get paid interest? Where does interest come from? Well, because as a capitalist, if you buy a tractor, output goes up with the help of the tractor. So that's why you earn a return on your investment. But I thought we just spent five minutes earlier going through why that's not correct. All right, so then I say, what the typical neoclassical economist fails to appreciate is just how special the case of a one good economy is for it sweeps away all of the thorny problems of capital and interest theory. But once we allow for an economy with two goods, then the Bombaverkian perspective regains its relevance. All right, so very quickly here, and let me just, I want to say this, I'm not saying, and I would be tempted to skip over this, but like I said, this was kind of one of the main things I did in my dissertation. And so I want to make sure, in case I get hit by a bus next week, that you folks understand this because it really does isolate and distill down something pretty important. And it shines a spotlight, I think, on why modern economists trained with these standard models where there's just one good, they're walking around, they don't know what interest is. All right, so let me just make sure I get that across to you folks, that what they think interest is, they are wrong. Okay, so yeah, there's lots of, from an Austrian purist perspective, there's lots of simplifying assumptions and things that are wrong and misleading in a standard neoclassical model. But when in the standard neoclassical model, they say, okay, because labor markets are competitive in equilibrium, the real wage rate has to be equal to the first derivative of the production function with respect to labor, L. Yeah, there's lots of, you could say, oh, you know, human action and people are, you know, they have subjective desires and you can't just quantify that and model like the robots and blah, blah. Okay, fine. Yeah, sure. But 
given that you're going to go down that path and write out equations and things to set the real wage rate equal to the marginal product of labor, by which we mean the first derivative of the production function with respect to L, that's correct, right? That is putting into math the logic of how an Austrian would talk about what's the real wage rate in equilibrium with competitive labor markets, right? Again, there'd be all kinds of caveats and blah, blah, blah. But basically, yeah, sure. It's how much on the margin when you hire one more unit of labor input, what does that do to output? And then, okay, measure it in money terms, fine. And then that's how much in money wages the worker should be paid. And then you can relate it to the price of a basket of goods to say, okay, in real terms, how much is the worker getting paid? Okay, that's the story that the Austrians would tell. And that's kind of what the math is symbolizing. So what I'm saying is, with interest, it's different. When a neoclassical would write in a standard model, R equals the production, you know, the first derivative of the production function with respect to K, and think, oh yeah, interest is equal to the marginal product of capital. Or they might even say interest is the marginal product of capital. It's not just that, oh, well, can you really write into an equation form and the future is uncertain and blah. No, that's not what it is. What you just wrote down was the rental price of capital. That's what the first derivative of the production function with respect to K is. That's showing you how much you could rent out a tractor per unit time. Just like a wage rate is you're renting out the worker's body for a unit period of time. What's the gross rent on that? Likewise, you rent out a tractor per unit time. What's the gross rent on that? We happen to call it wages in the case of the worker because labor by definition gets paid wages. But the analog of that would be the rental price per unit time of the capital good, not what's the rate of return. Right, the analog of interest for the worker would not be the wage rate. It would be, it'd be like for a slave. And you had to say, well, how much did I pay to buy the slave? And then when I rent the slave out to the plantation owner down the street, and he pays me a, some money to rent the slave for a day, and then I compare that money rental price with the original spot price I had to pay to own the slave outright, and then what's that fraction? And then that's the daily return. Then you could take that and annualize it over, you know, for 365 days, and that would be the annual rate of return. Okay, so do you see how like the dimensions are wrong? If you think that the interest rate is just equal to the rental price of a tractor, that would be the same mistake as to say, if you had slave labor, oh, the interest rate in this economy is equal to the marginal product of labor. Like, why is it that when a plantation owner goes to the auctions and buys the slave, the new slaves that came in on the ship? And then takes another plantation and why you spent, I don't remember off the top of my head what slave prices were like. Let's say, you you know, you spent $1,000 on a slave and then over the course of the year, you earned $100 and the slave's market value only dropped to 990. So the total is higher now. The financial capital you started with has grown over the course. Why is that? And to just say, oh, because the slave was productive, that he can generate more crops for you by adding him to your production process, then you have to feed him and pay for his clothes and whatever. That would be committing the naive productivity theory fallacy. You know, say, no, that doesn't explain the rate of return. Okay. But again, why is this problem not jumping out? Because you would think, well, isn't the whole point of these mainstream neoclassical economists putting their economic intuition into formal mathematical models, aren't they supposed to avoid crude 
mistakes in circular reasoning and stuff like that. And yes, they do. Okay. So, and this partly too is why I'm so you might think that I'm sitting here trying to just lecture the mainstream. I'm also making sure the Austrians appreciate this, that yeah, the crisp mathematical formalism is useful because it's very rigorous. And so it can show us precisely where this fallacy is coming in. So the mainstream models aren't wrong. The Romer's commentary on the solo model, and by the way, that's solo, S-O-L-O-W, not solo like, oh, 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 solo, oh, oh, oh. That was my job of the hut impression. That commentary from Romer was correct. In the solo model, if you want to say, what does the real rate of interest equal? It does equal the derivative of the production function respect to K. But the reason it does is that there's only one good in that model. So this was the epiphany I had in grad school. And I was sitting there trying to wrap my, you know, I was like, what the heck is going on? Because I was looking at the solo, you know, the discussion. And I was like, that, that's right. It's not that the equations are wrong. What the heck is going on? How can that be? Because Bumbavik's right too. It took me a while. And then finally I realized, oh, it's because there's one good. All right. So I figured it out like intuitively first. And then I wrote it out in equations. And then it was crystal clear what the heck was going on. Okay. So intuitively in the solo model, Again, think of the, what I was just walking you through. Output, the production function takes K and L as inputs and then just produces something called Y, which is just a measure of the output, out of which the agent consumes some. That's what C is that period. And then the difference gets added to the existing capital stock, which may have gone down if there's a depreciation factor. And then the next period's capital stock is just the addition of the net of depreciation past capital stock plus whatever is invested. That's the gap between output over consumption. So notice there's no conversion factor. And I'm not talking about money. I'm not measuring these things in money units. And then no, this is physical. The capital stock is measured in physical terms and consumption is measured in physical units of consumption. Good. So the only way those equations make any sense is if it's literally the same physical thing. Okay. And Irving Fisher back when economics was still more verbal in his books, he would come up with different stylized examples. Like some sailor would be shipwrecked on an island and have a bunch of like either figs or hard tack or sheep maybe, right? So an economy where, where the only good is sheep. So they grow over time. There's a natural, you know, let's say they grow by 10%. So if you start with a hundred sheep and if you didn't kill any of them for consumption purposes, they would naturally turn into 110 sheep next period. Right, whereas the figs would depreciate, they would rot over time. If you had a hundred units of figs and you didn't do anything with it, it would physically turn into whatever, 95 units of figs next period. And the hard tech had a 0% technological rate of increase, right? You had a hundred units of hard tech and didn't consume it, it would physically turn into a hundred units of hard tech next period. And then Fisher showed how whatever your subjective preferences were, it would have to be the case in equilibrium that you adjusted your consumption patterns over time such that with the sheep, the real rate of interest was 10%. With the figs, it was, what did I say, negative 5%, I think with the numbers I gave. And then with the hard tech, it was 0%. But there it was clear what he was doing and his reasoning. And you could see how it was critical for that logic to go through that there was just one good. Okay, so it was saying in the special case, where the only thing was sheep that happened to be growing at 10% per year, the person would adjust how much sheep he consumed over time. So whatever his subjective preferences were. So it wouldn't be the same for different people. 
on the margin, it would end up being the same that 10 present sheep would have the same market value or would trade for 11 future sheep, but different people with different subjective time preferences and stuff, the pattern of how many sheep did they consume each period would look different. But the idea was each person would adjust his sheep consumption trajectory such that whatever their subjective preferences were and time preferences, blah, blah, blah. It so happened that on the margin, they also subjectively would trade one present sheep to obtain a promise to have 1.1 sheep delivered next period. Okay. And that's the logic that would go through the hard tack and the figs. Okay. And probably I saw it because Fisher was so, I don't remember exactly my thought process, but I think because Fisher was so clear and thinking through that, like I realized like, okay, that's the trick if you want to call it. It's that because there's just one good that kind of pins down what the real interest rate has to be in equilibrium, but it's not because by definition, or it's not that in general or conceptually, those technological facts make the real rate of interest have to be such and such. It's just in a world where that's the only good, then yeah, it has to be that. So that's what I did now with this equation that kind of summarizes it. So in my chapter, it's equation 12.1, where I say in general, if there's two goods where let's say there's a machine and then a consumption good. So the production function takes the amount of machines as an input and then turns that into consumption goods. And those are physically distinct, right? So the consumption good is not the same thing as machinery. Then in addition to having to keep track of consumption goods and machines, there's another variable. It's the price of the machines measured in units of consumption goods. All right. And so I wrote out, I said, so if you're an investor buying machinery, how do you write out what the return on your investment is? What's the real rate of interest on your investment? And so I said, well, and this is very intuitive that, okay, the way you figure it's delta of Y plus one divided by delta of MT and then plus the change in the price of the machine so PT plus one minus PT, where P measures the price of the machine quoted in units of consumption good. And then all that divided by PT. All right, so that, again, if you're just hearing me say this, it's not going to help, but I'm going through this in case people have the chapter in front of them. All right, so for example, let me walk through this, in, this numerical example. Suppose in period one, again, this is, once you know what I'm trying to say, it's, this is straightforward stuff. This isn't even like advanced accounting or anything. But again, if it's kind of abstract, you don't know what the heck I'm talking about. So this simple example will make it crystal clear. So it's real simple. For example, suppose in period one that a unit of brand new machinery, which is used to harvest coconuts. So in this example, the coconuts are still the consumption good. Sells on the market for 100 coconuts. Okay, so again, period one, a brand new machine sells on the market for 100 coconuts. The investor who happens to have 100 coconuts saved up trades 100 coconuts out of his stockpile to acquire this extra machine, right? Because that's his purchase price, 100 coconuts. He happens to have 100 coconuts physically that he stockpiled. So he says, here's my 100 coconuts in savings, buys this brand new machine. Now the machine, suppose, boosts his physical harvest of coconuts in the next period by 20 coconuts, right? So however many coconuts he would have otherwise harvested next period. Now, because he just bought this brand new machine and is using it to help him get coconuts, next period, his harvest is 20 coconuts higher than it otherwise would have been. So the marginal physical product of that machine next period is 20 coconuts. Okay. Thus in period one, we would say that the marginal product of capital is 20 
future coconuts, this is how much the owner of the new machine could rent it out for a single period use, right? So if he's not using it himself, but there's some guy down the street involved in the enterprise of coconut harvesting, he could say, hey, I'll rent you my new machine for one period. And I want you to pay me 20 future coconuts, meaning I'm giving the machine right now. You don't have to pay me until next period. But at that point, you give me my machine back and you give me 20 coconuts. And that other guy would be willing to do that. Where that's the most the guy would pay for it because that's how much it would boost his thing. And so if there's competitive markets in this, you would think he would be able to just get that bit, right? Other people would want to, you know, somebody would do it for 18 because he would still make two. Somebody would do it for 19. Somebody might do it for 18.9. And then in the limit, once somebody promises him 20, he's just breaking even. Okay. So you might say, oh, so the interest rate is 20. And this is the thing too here. Like just think about the units. The interest rate obviously isn't 20 coconuts. That's not a rate. That's units of fruit. It's a fruit, right? It's not a nut. Know that, right? So that should give you a hint that something screwy was saying interest is equal to the marginal product of capital if we're thinking about the augmentation of physical goods. Okay, so wait a minute. So what? So to compute the total financial return to our investor, we also need to know how much the market value of the machine measured in coconuts changes in the interim. Suppose that in period two, a one-period-old machine sells for 85 coconuts. Overall, then, our investor at the end of period two is left with 20 additional coconuts in physical output, less the drop in market value of his machine by 15 coconuts. Because right? remember, he originally paid 100 coconuts for this brand new machine. He uses it one period. Now, at period two, the machine's not brand new anymore. It's now one period old. And so, because this machine isn't indestructible every time you use it you know its market value goes down from this standard depreciation and so again suppose it happens to go down by 15 coconuts so that if he tried to sell this machine now in period two when it's one period old suppose the market price is 85 coconuts for a machine that's like that so now when he's looking back at this whole scenario trying to compute what's the return on his investment he's going to say okay Originally, I paid 100 coconuts to get the brand new machine. It allowed me to harvest 20 additional coconuts over what I otherwise would have gotten from my trees. But the market value of the, of the machine dropped by 15. So really, my net return was only five coconuts. But to compute that in percentage terms, I have to say, so I earned five real coconuts divided by the 100 real coconuts that I originally invested. So that's a 5% rate of return. All right, so everyone see how that works? So notice there, it was critical. I needed to know what's the price of the machine in terms of coconuts in order to do that calculation. Now, what if we change the scenario and say, oh, instead of there being this distinct physical thing, namely a machine that helps you harvest this distinct physical thing, namely coconuts, what if it's a case where the capital good and the consumption good are the same thing? Like, for example, if you just picture it as being sheep, that the sheep physically produce more sheep. And that so the capital good is sheep, but the consumption good is sheep too. Well, in that world, then, when you write the same equation, then the purchase price of the machine is necessarily one every period because the machine just is the consumption good. So if they're the same things, 
then the price of something in terms of itself is always one. So in terms of the equation, I mean, this, this is kind of neat. So in terms of the original equation that I wrote out, that's true in general. If you plug in that P sub T equals one for all T, the whole thing was being divided by PT. So now you're just dividing it by one. So that drops away. And then one of the terms in the numerator was PT plus one minus PT, right? Showing what's the change in the price of the machine from one period to the next period. But if the price is always one, that term is just one minus one. So that's zero. So that drops away. So then the original more complicated equation that I gave reduces to just saying RT equals delta YT plus one divided by delta MT. Namely, the real rate of interest at time T is just what's the change, what's the delta in future output divided by the change in the present stock of machinery. In other words, the marginal product of capital. Okay, so again, I know I spent some time on that, but that was basically one of the main insights of my entire time at NYU. <laughs> and that's why I'm stressing it, because I, I think it is important for you to really understand that's what's going on. And that's why these mainstream economists who are trained in these one good models, they're walking around thinking interest is something that it's not. They don't understand what interest is because in these one good models, it happens to be equal to the marginal product of capital. And so they think that's what its essence is when no, that's just, I don't know if coincidence is the right word. It's only true though in a one good model. So they think they're simplifying things just to boil it down to the essence when no, they're actually boiling away the reality and distilling it down into something that's artificially fixed. Okay. I have a whole section here where I go through an argument that Samuelson brought up and Kurzer, and it, there's some cool stuff in here, but it's too advanced. All right, so I give a too good counterexample, and it, it would just be too hard to summarize. But Ryan, if your name is Ryan, you need to understand this part. Okay, so now I go through with some problems with the canonical PTPT. A big thing, like I say in this, is that Austrians often use the term time preference to mean two different things. And what's worse is sometimes in the same argument, in mid-argument, they will flip. And so let me just give an example. Here, I'm, quote, picking on Hans Hoppe, not because he's saying something crazy that, oh, geez, Mises and Rothbard wouldn't have said that. It just, what he said, like, perfectly illustrated what I'm trying to get at my objection. So this is nothing peculiar to Hoppe. This kind of argument is standard in this literature. So I say, for example, Hans Hoppe argues that, quote, if a negative event such as a flood is expected, the marginal utility of future goods rises. The time preference rate will fall and savings will increase. So this is me talking. This usage construes time preference as a marginal concept, which can be affected by the relative supplies of goods in the present versus future. Right? Because again, Hoppe said, if you think a future flood is coming, then the marginal utility of future goods rises. All right? Because there's going to be less available in the future because the flood's going to knock out stuff. So on the margin, future goods are now more valuable to you. And so since time preference is the premium on present versus future goods, if other things equal now, future goods are more valuable, then that means the rate of time preference falls because now the premium on present goods is lower that you've learned, oh, geez, a flood's coming, okay? But now I'm saying, okay, so if that's what time preference is and you learning 
that there's going to be fewer goods available next period or, you know, a year from now, whatever, means your rate of time preference falls, I say. In principle, one might suppose that the expectation of a sufficiently catastrophic future flood might reduce time preference so much that it becomes negative, meaning an individual would prefer a marginal promise of additional future goods rather than having them in the present. But Hoppe earlier in the article denies that time preference can ever be negative, which suggests that he's using the concept in a, quote, other things equal fashion rather than as a marginal concept. Okay, so again, just to make sure you get what I'm saying there, if Hoppe admits that knowing the future supply of goods can go down lowers your rate of time preference, well, what if you learn there's going to be a really bad flood next period, so people are going to be starving? In principle, then, instead of just saying, oh, 10 present goods before you used to trade for 15 future goods, then you learn about a moderate flood, so now 10 present goods only trades for 11 future goods, so notice the rate of time preference has fallen. What if when you learn it's going to be an absolute nightmare flood, maybe 10 present goods trades for eight future goods? In principle, why not? If it could go from 10 trading for 20 down to 10 trading for 11, why not 10 trading for nine? And typically what happens is there's not some appeal merely to technology to say, well, because you could, for most goods, you could physically carry them into the future. Like what if it's a good that rots or something? What if you can't physically transport it into the future. But anyway, that's not the issue. That's not usually what, usually what they'll say is, no, just a priori, we can think through the logic of it. You would never have a negative time preference. But then I'm saying you're using it in a different sense then. Okay, because clearly you could imagine real world scenarios where somebody would trade 10 present goods for a promise to pay eight units of the future good. And so what they would typically do in the PTPD literature is say, well, in cases like that, it's not really the same good. Or they would come up with some other escape hatch, but then I'm saying, okay, but then just be consistent at least. Okay, if you wanted to find time preference that way to say, oh, we need to be comparing the same good and in your scenario, there's different good. Okay, but then likewise, why are you saying the flood makes it go from 10 originally would trade for 20 future units, but then 10 only now trades for 11 when you learn about the flood? Well, are those different goods? You know, so anyway, that's my main problem with it. All right, I had some other issues too, but I'm not going to get into it. Last section, recent attempts to rehabilitate Austrian interest theory. So here I'll just read some excerpts and then we'll be done with this episode. In this final section, we will summarize three recent attempts to offer an Austrian theory of interest that improves upon or entirely replaces the PTPT. Murphy 2003, so here I'm talking about what I did in my dissertation, observes that the PTPT is a quote, real theory of interest when ironically, the Austrian and specifically Misesian perspective characteristically emphasizes the driving force of money and criticizes the neoclassical economists for analyzing price relations in the hypothetical barter economy. Murphy argues that interest is, first and foremost, an intertemporal exchange of money, just as it would be nonsensical to explain the exchange rate between the yen and the dollar by saying American goods are preferred to Japanese goods. Murphy argues that it is equally at odds with other tenets in Austrian economics to explain the premium on present dollars by issuing blanket statements that, quote, present goods are preferred to future goods. Okay, so to make sure you get my analogy there, think about exchange rates on foreign currencies, right? So right now, the U.S. dollar trades at a big premium to the Japanese yen. You got to give whatever, high 90s, 100 or some yen to get one U.S. dollar. No Austrian would explain that by saying American goods are preferred to Japanese goods. 
Can you imagine trying to, you're like, what? You know how many things would be wrong with that kind of an explanation? Just for one thing, is the collectivism involved? I don't mean like communism, like rounding people up. I'm just saying like not thinking on the margin and just grouping all American goods into one lump thing category compared to Japanese goods. And then say, oh, that's the reason that the currency that can buy the one trades at a premium to the currency that buys, you see what I'm saying? It would just be nutty. He wouldn't talk like that. That wouldn't be an Austrian approach. So then I'm saying one way of thinking about what is positive rate of interest is kind of like the exchange rate of present for future dollars. And so instead of saying, what's the exchange rate between dollars and yen, instead you're saying, what's the exchange rate between dollars today and dollars to be delivered one year from now? And if that exchange rate, if there's a premium on the present dollars, that's saying there's a positive nominal rate of interest. So then suppose there is, okay? Suppose present dollars traded a premium to future dollars. Just like suppose present dollars traded a premium for present yen. And we already just established, you would not say that's because American goods are preferred to Japanese goods. So likewise, okay, if we're trying to explain as an Austrian economist, why does a present dollar trade at a premium to future dollars? You wouldn't say because present goods are preferred to future goods. What are you, out of your mind? What kind of statement is that? Okay, so that's where I'm coming from. So my point was, Bombavrik actually, at step one, made a mistake, or at least made a theory that would not be Austrian as the school would later develop, particularly under the brilliant care of Ludwig von Mises, that what Bombavrik is giving us is a real theory of interest. He's trying to explain why is it that the market value of certain goods in the present or Keynes would talk about the own rate of interest, if you know that terminology. Why is it that a present apple can trade in the marketplace for a claim to more than one future apple? That's what Bambarik is really explaining. But I'll say, but as Austrians, in other contexts, Mises blasts the Walrasian modelers for looking at the economy, even after the subjective margin utility revolution, so using modern value, subjective value theory, still Mises peers in the early 1900s, the way they would explain market prices was basically first imagining a barter economy where they would use marginal utility and then marginal productivity to explain the real exchange rates and equilibrium of all the goods against each other as if they directly traded and there was no money because in these models, you don't need money. And then as an afterthought, they would overlay, oh yeah, now, in the real world, there's money, so let's go ahead and put money prices on all these real exchange ratios that we determined in a barter model. Then Mises doesn't like that, and he said, no, there's a driving force of money. It's not just a neutral thing that overlays stuff. So I'm saying if Mises doesn't like using the real approach to determine spot prices, like why is it that 10 apples trade for 11 oranges right now, and Mises said, don't just go right to a barter model, where, oh, it's because the marginal utility to the consumers of oranges and apples is such and such. And that's why in equilibrium, it must be the case that 10 apples right now trades for 11 oranges. If Mises is mad when you don't use money in that context, then how the heck, when you want to explain interest rates, which are prices charged for lending money, right? At least the neoclassicals, when they're explaining apple and orange price ratios by imagining barter in their defense, it's because, well, yeah, you're selling apples and buying oranges with money kind of as intermediate. 
But with interest, you're selling dollars to buy future dollars. You're selling present dollars to buy future dollars, right? So it's the money itself that is the thing being transacted more so than when it comes to selling apples and buying oranges or whatever. And so there, all the more so you would think, oh, when we talk about interest, let's really focus on money. But no, we don't talk about money at all in the pure type of theory of interest tradition. We say, oh, it's because present goods are more valuable than future. We just think about goods. So what I offered in my dissertation was a monetary theory of interest. And I use the word monetary to distinguish it from a real theory. All right, but then I'm saying now in this chapter for pair, one drawback with Murphy 2003 is that by describing his own framework as a monetary as opposed to a real theory of interest, he may understandably have led some Austrians to worry that the approach imports fallacies associated with Keynes's theory of interest. All right, so Keynes also offered a monetary theory of interest called liquidity preference. And there's a lot associated with his theory that I disagree with. And a lot of Austrians, when they think of, and I think that's partly why they have a revulsion to an explanation of interest that involves money is because they're worried, oh, this is Keynesian. All right, so now that I'm here offering suggestions for the future, I am acknowledging that, yeah, that is a problem and not merely because of labeling, right? That anyway, we'll see what Herbner did and why I'm actually stepping aside and holding up Herbner and saying, yeah, in terms of something that Austrians can rally around and that makes sense and that unifies the past tradition with the current advances and blah, 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 and yet overcomes a lot of these problems with the way, you know, Rothbard and Mises did it. I like Herbner, but let me first mention Holzman. Holzman, 2002, critiques the PTPT and then offers what he terms a realist explanation of interest. Specifically, Hulsman argues that in a means-end framework, although the means derives its subjective value from the end, it clearly cannot acquire the same value, for otherwise the actor would never exchange the means for the end. This simply a powerful insight leads Hulsman to offer a bold new definition, quote, so this is Hulsman, originary interest is the fundamental spread between the value of an end and the value of the means that serve to attain this end. Although Hulsman's logic is unassailable, it is unclear why the spread between the valuation of means and ends should correspond so closely to the passage of time. And furthermore, by grounding originary interest in the nature of action itself, Hulsman's approach, too, ignores the special role of money. All right, so I don't need to get bogged down. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 273. Among other things, I will also link to when I had Herbner on, and I'm pretty sure we talked about Hulsman's theory, and we both had the same concern, I, I think. Either that or I had Hulsman on the show and brought up my issue, but I, I don't remember. <laughs> but I know with somebody who was an Austrian economist that I mentioned my concern with Hulsman and, and got that out there. I think it was with Herbner. Okay, but make sure you get it. So what Hulsman's saying is normally in the subjective tradition, you say, oh, how do you value the means? Well, you look at what the end is. And then that's like the source conceptually, obviously not chronologically, like, to say, why is the stick valuable? Oh, because I can use it to knock the coconuts down from the tree. Like it's either, you know, I have to climb the tree now. Or with this long stick, I can just stand on the ground and knock the coconuts down. Okay, so you value the stick because you ultimately value the coconuts. And now you look at that stick and you don't see merely some piece of wood. But now you realize, oh, this is a means to obtaining more future coconuts or coconuts plus more leisure. Like if you maybe just knock down the same amount of coconuts, but 
you do it faster because you don't have to climb up the tree. And so now you get your coconuts and then you get to lounge on the beach more. Okay, so you're looking at that stick as a way to have more beach time, maybe. Okay, but either way, the valuation of that stick is tied to your valuation of either the coconuts or the line on the beach, whatever. But Holzman's point is, even though the stick derives its value from those final ends, it's not as equally valuable, right? So like, let's say with the stick, you can knock down two extra coconuts. The stick doesn't have the same value to you as those two coconuts, because otherwise, why would you take the stick and knock the coconuts down? You would just hold the stick and say, ah, I'm holding something here that has a certain amount of value to me. But no, the fact that you transform it, you don't just sit there holding the stick, you use it to knock down and get the two coconuts because you actually prefer the two coconuts to just holding the stick. So that proves that the two coconuts are more valuable to you than the stick is. And so Holzman's point is quite straightforward, is that even though the stick derives its value from the value you place on those coconuts, it can't have the full value. And so he's saying that spread is ultimately the source of interest. And even though I agree there's something cool going on there with that spread and people should think more about that, I don't think that's what interest is about amongst other issues. It's still, that's a generic thing applying to all action. That's not really specifically about money. And to me, interest is the price of renting money, if you want to think of it that way, or it's the price, the intertemporal exchange rate of money units. And so I don't see why that would necessarily correspond one-to-one with this concept Holzman's talking about. Okay, so finally, Herbner in 2011 gives hints. And so this is part of the problem is that Jeff doesn't really have this spelled out anywhere. This is kind of like in his head. And so that's partly why I had him on my podcast was to get him to flesh this out a bit. And then to my knowledge, me writing this up here is in terms of like telling everybody, hey, look at what Jeff is working on here. We need to elaborate on this. That's partly what I'm doing. Okay, so finally, Herbner in 2011 gives hints of what may be called a calculation theory of interest, right? So that's his term. So I think that's a given that we're going to try to come up with a new Austrian theory that replaces the PTPT, the pure time preference theory. In my dissertation, I was proposing a monetary theory, but no, I think Jeff's right. Let's call it a calculation theory, that that centers on the essence of what the Austrian vision is more than just calling it monetary. So it's true. It is a monetary theory. So the way I would handle it now is to say, ah, Herbner's calculation theory of interest, if we had to put it in the taxonomy, is a monetary theory of interest. You see how that works? Right. But by just calling it a monetary theory, I think that isn't enough information. Okay. Herbner's approach retains the essence of the PTPT while restoring the primacy of monetary prices, as any quintessentially Austrian explanation must. Furthermore, Herbner argues that he is merely rekindling the explanation of interest that we find in Menger and Fetter. Right. So when I read Jeff make this point, that's when I was like, okay, yeah, he's really onto something here because he's saying it's not just I, Jeff Herbner. I'm christening this new approach called the calculation theory. He's saying this actually was in Menger and Fetter. And then we kind of lost this part of it. So this is Jeff talking. Following Menger, pure time preference for Fetter is the preference people have for a given satisfaction sooner instead of the same satisfaction later. The rate of interest reflecting pure time preference emerges in the exchange of present money for future money. And this is me. Later in his essay, Herbner quotes from Fetter directly. Okay, so this quote from Fetter that Jeff highlights shows that, oh, the money really was, you know, the appraisal function or process of money that Salerno talks about when it comes to the calculation debate and socialism. 
from ground zero, Fetter had this when he was talking about us. So this is Fetter. But two or more quite different things may be expressed in terms of another thing and so be made comparable. Money becomes the value unit through which different things may be reduced to the same terms for comparison. With this mode of expressing the value equivalence of various goods, the interest contract first becomes possible. Money, the standard of deferred payments, being the thing exchanged, possibly only in name, at two periods of time. And then this is me talking. The italicized sentence in particular shows the sense in which Herbner offers a calculation theory of interest. I italicized the sentence that said money becomes the value unit through which different things may be reduced to the same terms for comparison. Okay, so the italicized sentence shows the sense in which Herbner offers a calculation theory of interest in which the attributes of economic calculation, which Mises stressed in his debate with the market socialists, are applied across time and manifest themselves in the market rate of interest. If Austrians want to claim these virtues for the, quote, time market, they cannot ignore the role of money, which the canonical PTPT does. And then one last sentence I'll say, at the present time, Herbner's suggested calculation theory of interest seems the most promising as a refinement of the traditional PTPT. All right. So there you have it. That's a good place for me to wrap up, folks. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 273. I'll give you the links, not just to the book if you want to invest a large sum of financial capital in it, but I'm sure it will yield a return over time. But there will also be links to free things to supplement your knowledge in this area. Thanks for listening, everybody. I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.